0: The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. You have a copy of God's Word. Would you join me? Genesis chapter 22. Together we're going to look verse 1 to verse 19. Not because 20 through 24 is unimportant. There is nothing in the scriptures that is unimportant, but because I can't pronounce those names. (laughs) After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they had came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham reached, or Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This morning, we reach what is probably the most well-known story in the life of Abraham, Abraham has come to be known as being willing to sacrifice his son. You've been around church for any amount of time. You know this. You've, you've heard this. But we must be careful this morning because it could be our very familiarity with this text that causes us to miss some of its most important truths. This passage is one of the most difficult, challenging, testing passage of scriptures in all of the Bible, in my opinion. I think it probably doesn't strike us this way right off the bat because we know this so well. Because we stand on this side of history looking back. We know the outcome of the story. We know what God does in providing a, a sacrifice, in providing a ram. We, on this side of things, can look at Genesis 22 and see and rejoice in how it serves us as a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice that is to come in Jesus Christ. But what I hope for us this morning is that we read with fresh eyes and that we attempt as much as possible to put ourselves there in Abraham's shoes. Three things this morning from the text I want us to see. The first is the perplexity of the sovereign. The perplexity of the sovereign. The second is the perspective of the servant. The perspective of the servant. And then lastly, the provision of the substitute. The perplexity of the sovereign, the perspective of the servant, and the provision of the substitute. By Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has experienced, he has received the child of promise. God has made all of these promises to Abraham, and Abraham has begun to experience receiving these things. This child of promise, this miraculous child that Sarah has bore him is, is here. Abraham has, has journeyed to the land. And though he does not possess it, because there are still inhabitants there, he has experienced the blessings of the land. He's experienced the blessing of the promised Child, I imagine for Abraham, probably, the idea that there would be a land that would be his, that would be his his offspring, his family, would be um, a a great and encouraging uh, promise. But nothing like the promise of a son. Nothing like the promise of a child, one that you had longed for all of these years. And now he's received this child. And he's watched this child as this child has grown up in his household. Certainly full of of love and care. Full of hope of all the things that God would do through this child of promise. Full of eager expectation for these future blessings of God in Isaac. Until God comes and asks of Abraham, the unthinkable. Until God comes and asks of Abraham, the unreasonable. What does he do after these things? Verse 1, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, we do not know how old Isaac is here. There's lots of speculation. We do not know. Certainly, Isaac is not a child. He is... He has the, the physical ability here to carry the wood for the offering. Probably Isaac is between 18 and 20, 25 years old at this point. And as Abraham has watched and enjoyed to see this promised child of his Grow, God comes with a test for Abraham, doesn't He? And I'm frustrated by this. Because we don't know why God is testing Abraham. It doesn't tell us why God is testing Abraham. But this test that God has for Abraham is different than what we usually find in the Scriptures when it comes to a testing. Usually in the Scriptures, when it speaks of the testing of someone, it speaks in terms of hardship or adversity that is introduced in the life of a believer. But this is not that kind of test. This is a test of obedience. God comes to test Abraham to see if Abraham will be obedient to him and in this test it is an unreasonable test it's unreasonable no make no mistake about it there really isn't any kind of moral paradigm at least from a human understanding that you could hold this request by God up against and walk away saying this is okay Take your child, your only child, and offer a human sacrifice unto me as an act of worship. That's the request. We don't know why. What we do know is that God is testing Abraham. We know that because Moses tells us that, doesn't he? I, I think there's, there's some intentionality here. Obviously, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I think there's some in, intentionality here for Moses to sort of make it clear right off of the, the beginning that God is testing Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham. So we know up front what God is, is doing here. We know... Abraham did not know. God did not say to Abraham, Abraham, this is a test of your obedience, of your fear, of your faith. This is a test. Let me see how you're going to do. God doesn't tell Abraham. Abraham doesn't know that this is a test. What we do know And what Abraham knows is that God's command here to take His Son and to sacrifice Him is a command that goes against all that God has said that He would do for decades now. Right? Imagine being Abraham and finally having the Son of Promise after decades upon decades upon decades. And watching this child grow for decades, knowing full well that this is the child from which God has said He would make nations of people. Kings would come from this man. The world would be blessed through this man. The offspring of this man, Isaac, would would be in greater number than the stars of the heaven or the dust of the earth. That's what Abraham knows. And now God says before any of that has taken place, you take him and you kill him. What will Abraham do when God makes no sense? What will we do when his ways are not clear? Will we go on walking by faith and obedience in the unknown until God makes it clear? That's the question. You see, you cannot come to this text and not come face to face with the perplexity of a sovereign God. You see, if we are not careful, we craft for ourselves a God that we can tame. A God that is comfortable. A God that is predictable. A God that is impotent. A God that is safe. But that is not the sovereign God. I am reminded of the interaction in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy is there in Narnia, quite confused, certainly, by all the experiences that she's having, as she is having a conversation with some beavers, and she learns of a lion named Aslan, and this lion C.S. Lewis's work serves us as the Christological figure. But for a little girl, a lion is, is terrifying, right? And so she has this conversation and she says, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course He isn't safe, but He's good. He's the King, I tell you. God is not safe. God is not predictable. God does not operate within the bounds that we set for Him. God is sovereign. And there is much mystery about the sovereign God of the Bible. Psalm 115, it's one of my favorite little verses, verses two and three. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. This is the definition of sovereignty. That God can do whatever pleases Him. And He does. It may not always make sense to us, it may not always be clear to us. It may at times come face to face with our perceptions that we've created of who He is and how He acts. God is not always clear. And He is sovereign, so He doesn't have to be. He can do and is doing whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants. He is the sovereign God. And He does not have to tell us always exactly what He's up to. And He does it to Abraham. The question for us is, are we okay with that? To believe in God's sovereignty is to believe that. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and you and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's funny we 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 hear that verse and we know it and we love it, and it's uh, the Lord's ways are higher than our ways, the Lord's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Like this is this is this is condescending to us, isn't it? This is God saying, listen. As high as the heavens are from the earth. Let me ask you a question. At what point do the heavens stop? Well, no one knows. Supposedly, somehow, they're ever expanding. How do they know that? There is no limit. God's saying, there is no limit to how much higher my thoughts are than your thoughts What a good reminder for us. Quite frankly, God has every right and reason to be condescending to us because He is that much greater than we are, because He is sovereign and we are not. Are you okay with the perplexity of a sovereign God? Who isn't always clear? Who doesn't always fit into our boxes? What God is calling Abraham to is to a sacrifice, right? And while the commandment here was to sacrifice Isaac as an offering to the Lord, the real point at what God is getting to here was not the sacrifice of Isaac. It was Abraham's willing sacrifice of himself. The sacrifice of his own will and his own wisdom in regard to his son. The test here is not for Isaac. The test here is for Abraham. Abraham, are you willing to lay aside all that you hold dearest and closest for me? That's the test. And so, how does Abraham respond? Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning... Saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. What? I mean, that's my response to that. Like, I'm sorry, what? Wait, 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 just a minute here. This is the same guy that hatched a plan and, and worked it out on multiple occasions To lie and say that his wife was his sister because he was afraid of dying. So afraid of death that he was willing to lie. So lacking in faith that he continued to do so. This is the same guy that just gets up early in the morning. Like, he's eager to do this. There's no record here of Abraham saying, uh, God, let me just, I just want to make real sure I heard you right here. You talk, you're, you, you're, talking about, you're talking about Isaac. Like, my Isaac. And when you say, like, sacrifice him, you mean, like, kill him? There's no, that's not here. There, there's no, wait a minute, God, that goes against all of the other promises you have given me. That's not here. He gets up early in the morning, saddled the donkey, took two servants with him and his son Isaac, cut the wood before he ever left, and arose and went to the place to which God had told him. How in the world does he do this? How can he do this? That's my question. How can he do this? How can he trust God and obey Him in the face of such unthinkable commands of God? Well, it's because of his perspective, because of the perspective of the servant. Abraham lets us in on what he's thinking Doesn't he? On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That's remarkable. Me and the boy, we're going to worship. And me and the boy, we're coming back. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. I, there's something that just strikes me about the language there. God will provide for himself. Not God will provide for me so that I can keep you, Isaac. Not God will provide for you, Isaac, so that you won't die. But God will provide for himself. Because all of this has to do with God and his glory and his worship and his honor and his praise. And so they both went together. Abraham has an unshakable faith, that God was faithful to his promises and that God would provide a sacrifice. Abraham's history with God's faithful informed his present heart of obedience. Abraham's past history informed his present heart of obedience. Abraham was able to look back at his life and see how God had remained faithful and true to his promises. And that was enough for Abraham to trust God in the darkness, even when God wasn't clear. Abraham believed. He walked in faith Verse eight, "I love it. God will provide a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. That's the ESV version there. It sort of literally is, God will see to it. Isaac, God will see to it. Derek Kinder says, that complete certainty about God and complete openness to the details. Is what's inside Abraham. A certainty about God, and yet an openness to the details of how God would do it. He is sure of God, but Abraham is not sure of the methods. Abraham is at peace with God's perplexity, knowing that he isn't safe, but he's good. He's good. What a a remarkable perspective that Abraham has to believe against belief that God would provide. That's what Moses tells us. But that's not the only perspective that Abraham has in this moment. What we learn from the writer of Hebrews is that Abraham believed even something else more absurd. Hebrews eleven, seventeen 17 through 19 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What, what, what verses 17 and 18 is saying is what God had said to do made no sense in the moment. But he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You know why that's crazy? Because we're on this side of things, right? We're on the side of things that says, yeah, God can raise people from the dead. Raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is raised from the dead. We're all going to be raised from the dead. Of course God can raise from the dead. Nobody had been raised from the dead. Yet Abraham believed. Even if I take him, God can bring him back. And so Abraham simply obeys. And when they came to the place to which God had told him, Abraham, and then I just, I love these, these, these series of action verbs here. It's just sort of, you know, getting us there in the moment. Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. I mean, you you can just you can sort of feel the the tension here, right? I mean, it's it's almost like. I mean, Moses is like, we're going to draw this out as long as we possibly can. I mean, we're just pregnant with anticipation here. And in that moment, God provides a substitute. I mean, Abraham is ready to strike the death blow. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. In that moment, God provides. A substitute. Now I'm sure that you have noticed the Christological theme and language throughout the story, right? You've seen God calling to Abraham, saying, Abraham, take your son, your only son, and whom you love. And you think, yeah, that sounds familiar. Jesus is God's son, he's his only son, whom God loves. Right? And then it, they travel. And how, how many days does it take to get there? It takes three days. On the third day, the time comes. I mean, we've, we see the Christological themes and the Christological language here. And, and we, we see it because we're on this side of things. And so some will say, and they, as they come to this, some will say that Isaac is a type of, of Christ in the Old Testament. But he isn't a type of Christ. Isaac isn't a type of Christ here. Because Isaac is is spared. Isaac is the substitute. He isn't the substitute. The ram is the substitute. Isaac isn't a type of Christ. Quite frankly, he's he's a type of us. Because when you look at this, you walk away and you go, even Israel himself, Isaac, needed a substitute. Guess what? So do you. Is this a foreshadowing of God doing? What he ultimately did not require Abraham to do? Yes. Yes. This is a foreshadowing of God saying, Abraham, the very thing that I didn't require of you, I will do myself. I'll give my son as a sacrifice. Yes, it is a foreshadowing. Is it a foreshadowing of the unthinkable, the unreasonable? The only Son of God sacrificed in our place. Yes, it is. It's a foreshadowing. And it's to show that there has to be a substitute. And God ultimately came as the only permanent and acceptable substitute in Jesus Christ. Our Lord. What does it mean, a substitute? What does it mean, there must be a substitute? What it means is that it is either you or Christ Jesus who will be sacrificed. That's what it means. Either you will die or Jesus will die in your place as a substitute for you. That's the options. You die for your sin, or Christ dies for your sin. And He becomes a substitute through faith. Faith like Abraham. A faith that trusts God as the only one who is able to provide. There is no other way. There is no other substitute. I'm reminded of another scared little girl in one of Lewis's books in the series called The Silver Chair. Jill is thirsty. And although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she'd been turned into stone, her mouth wide open, and she had very good reason. Just on the other side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised, its two forepaws out in front, like the lions at Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. If I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she'd tried. And she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And, she, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty... You may drink. They were the first words that she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second she stared here and there wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course she remembered that Scrub had said that the animals were talking in the other world. And realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time. And the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, stronger. A sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before. But it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Will you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls, she said? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it was angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other substitute than Jesus Christ. The days of rams caught in the thicket are long gone and not necessary because God did the unthinkable, the unreasonable, the morally absurd. He killed His own son. So that we, by faith, can enter into the promises of Abraham. And Abraham, by faith, drank of the stream of God's faithfulness. And so Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Have you drank of the stream, the grace of God, the only one that can quench your thirst? The fount of living water, the substitute sacrifice in your place. Have you by faith drank? And do we by faith obey even in the darkness when it makes no reasonable sense what God is doing? Knowing that He is not safe, He is not tame, He is not comfortable, He is not predictable, He is sovereign but he's good. God, your goodness is clearly on display. It's on display to us in creation, but nowhere is it more clearly seen than in you doing the unthinkable, killing your son, On a mountain, tied to the wood, in our place. There is no other substitute, only you, Jesus. So, would we by faith come to you and drink of the living water and never thirst again? And may we, God, trust and obey, even in the darkness and the confusion of uncertainty, knowing that one thing is for sure, you are sovereign and you are good. And you are working all things together for our good, for those who love you. Would we trust and obey? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.